You know, when I was in middle school, yeah, we had middle school. It was not a one-room school room. Uh, years ago, the school that I attended was right next to a 7-Eleven. Now, for those of you who don't know, a 7-Eleven is a convenience store, kind of like a Circle K or a Kangaroo Express. Well, the, the side parking lot right next to the road also doubled as a boxing ring or a UFC octagon. See, if there's going to be a fight after school, it would be there. Everyone knew it and everyone gathered to watch, just like you see in the movies, only this was real. I had to walk by that store every day on the way home from school, so I saw many fights. Most, mercifully, were quickly broken up with little blood and gore, but I remember once these two guys really got into it. One of them was the bully type, bigger, stronger. The other was smaller, almost scrawny. And this is where it diverges from the movies. The, The smaller guy did not have any special superpowers. So as you would expect, the big guy got into his boxing stance and wailed on the smaller guy. Again, it wasn't like the movies. The bully won big. I'll spare you the gory details. But it finally took an adult who had pulled into 7-Eleven to drag him off the smaller guy whose face was literally being pounded into the asphalt. It was horrible. He was a bloody mess. A few months, I think, later, my little brother got into it with with a next-door neighbor kid. We weren't at the 7-Eleven. They they were right there in the front yard. They were both about eight or nine, and they, they started fighting, fists flying. And as I looked out the window, I noticed that bully from 7-Eleven, he was there, and he was coaching the neighbor kid. (laughs) I ran outside, grabbed the bully's arm to pull him away, He squared up in that familiar, terrifying boxing stance and punched me right in the jaw. I can still feel it. It's like right there. (laughs) Two important things that you should know. First, I have not always been the intimidating physical specimen you see standing before you today. (laughs) And second, I loved my brother, but not that much. My life quickly passed before my eyes. Instead of punching him back, I grabbed my brother and dragged him inside. I mean, who wants to get into a fight if you know you're going to get whipped? And I didn't have any superpowers. You know, I wish, you know. Uh, Nope. (laughs) Last week, we began the book of Jude. We did our normal introductory work uh, when beginning any new book of the Bible We found, for example, that many call Jude the most neglected book of the New Testament, largely for three reasons, because of its brevity, its quotation of apocryphal or non-canonical, non-biblical books, but most importantly, it is ignored because of its in-your-face denunciation of false teachers, false believers, actually, promoting a sinful lifestyle in the church. Jude would have none of that. We didn't get to them last week, we will today. As per uh, introductory work, we looked at the author, the recipients, and and the greeting. We found the book was likely written in the late 50s, maybe into the mid-60s by the younger brother of of James, and James we saw was the pastor of the Church of Jerusalem. And since James was the half-brother of Jesus, Jude also 
was a half-brother of Jesus, but he didn't refer to himself that way. Rather, he called himself a slave of Jesus Christ. But, but even that was meant to be a statement of authority, to be owned by another in some ways suggests, listen to me, that you represent the owner. You speak with his authority. We also found that Jude is a so-called Catholic or general epistle in that the specific recipients aren't named. And, and so like the other general epistles, the book um, is named after the author, not the recipients. Again, like Galatians or Philippians or Colossians. It was named after the author. There's, there's said to be seven general epistles, James, first and second Peter, first, second, third John, and then our own Jude. But, but we did learn some specific things about the recipients, things that were incredibly important for them and, well, frankly, for us. Remember, Jude said, to those who are the called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ. All three of those words, called, loved, and kept, are passive, meaning they are not things that his readers or that, that we do, they are rather done to us. We are called by God. We are loved by God, and we are kept by God for Jesus Christ. It's not something that we do, but it's something that He does. We'll, we will need to be reminded of that over and over as we make our way through this very threatening letter with this very strong words of denunciation. I will say it. I will remind you again and again. We are called, we are loved, and we are kept. It's so important was this truth that Jude actually sandwiches the book with those truths. We get to the end of the letter with this reminder. Now to him who is able to keep you, I want to remind you of that, he's able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory, blameless with great joy to, to the only God our uh, Savior through Jesus Christ our Lord be glory and majesty, dominion and authority before all time and, and now and, and forever. Amen. God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, is able to keep us and make us stand in his glorious presence, blameless and, and, and with great joy. Hallelujah. He reminds us of that, starts the letter, ends the letter, and yet, in the middle, we are living in a broken, sin-cursed world where the enemy of our souls is alive and well, and false teachers frankly, more accurately, sinners who love their sin and want us to join them in their sin stand against us. So what then do we do? <laughs> well, we fight. We fight for the faith, which brings me back to that crazy introduction. The difference between this fight and the potential fearful fight I avoided as a 12-year-old is there is no need to fear. They can take their boxing stance against us. They can drag us into the ring or to the Colosseum or to jail or to death. Body they may kill, his truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever because victory is assured. No, now we may get beat up and bloodied a bit on the way. But we are called, we are kept, and we are loved and we are kept. So fight for the faith. We will, and, 
and we will win. Go ahead, take your best shot, Satan. We win, rather, he wins, which means we win. But now listen, the promise of victory does not bring ease in the midst of this raging battle. It brings valor. Let me say that again. The promise of victory in the midst of this raging battle does not bring ease. It brings valor. Don't feel like that you're on a sunny vacation in Orlando. Sorry, Ethan. Don't feel like you're on vacation. You're not. We're in the midst of a battle. And we forget that. It brings us to our text today. Having identified the author, Jude, and the recipients as much as we can identify them, having received this greeting, may mercy and peace and love be multiplied to you, we arrive at the occasion, the, the purpose for the letter. That is, what was the occasion that demanded that Jude write this particular letter? Now, now, it's interesting that many, many times the authors then the, uh, uh, of any work, to include authors of Scripture, uh, would wait till the end to tell us the purpose for writing the letter. Remember, for example, uh, the Apostle John. He waited till he got to the end. Chapter 20, there's only 21 chapters, the end of chapter 20, to tell us why he wrote the Gospel of John. He waited till 1 John chapter 5, the last chapter in that first epistle to tell us why he wrote that one. For the gospel, it was glorious. These things have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ. I've written my gospel so you'll look at everything that Jesus did and you'll know that he's the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you would have life in his name. That's why he wrote it. And then we get to uh, 1 John chapter 5, and he says this. These things I have written to you who believe. Maybe you read my gospel, and you believe that, that, that Jesus is the Son of God, but I've written false teachers that come in and begin questioning and, and, and begin upsetting uh, his readers. I have written these things so that you may know that you have eternal life because you are called, you are loved, and you are kept. You can know. But here, the outset of this letter, at the beginning of this letter, he doesn't wait till the end. In verse 3, Jude gives the purpose, the occasion uh, of his letter. So let's read verses 3 and 4, our text for today, to discover the purpose. Look at verse 3. Beloved, don't miss that word. Beloved, while I was making every effort to write you about our common salvation, I felt the necessity, compelled to write to you, appealing that you contend earnestly, fight for the faith which was once for all handed down to the saints. For certain persons have crept in unnoticed. Those who were long beforehand marked out for this condemnation that I am writing. Ungodly persons who turn the grace of our God into licentiousness and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. The outline of this uh, passage, those two verses, is really quite simple. We see the purpose for the writing in verse 3 and the reason for the purpose uh, in verse 4. By the way, last week I did not give you an outline of the book, so let me put it up on the screen. I've also made a few copies that are available uh, in the Welcome Center if you, you, know, if you want one. Uh, first, we looked at the salutation, that is the, the author to the recipients in the greeting last week, and then today we look at the purpose for the writing, and then he's going to jump into the description of these false I say teachers, there's really false believers in verses 5 
uh, to 19. He gives three Old Testament examples and he applies them. And then he gives three more Old Testament examples, applies them. Then he goes to that prophecy, elusive prophecy of Enoch and applies it. And then prophecy of the apostles and applies it. Finally, he exhorts the believers before ending with that glorious doxology, which by the way, I will encourage us to memorize verses 24 and 25. Now you will note from this outline, and as we make our way through the book, that Jude was very fond of triplets. Why do I say that? Well, in verse 2, he said, you were called and you were loved and you were kept. In, in, in uh, verse 3, um, Three, actually that's verse one, and then in verse two, he wished you um, mercy and peace and love. In, in verses five to 10, he gives three Old Testament examples, followed by three more examples. He loves triplets, which actually makes it quite easy to outline the book. So let's start with the purpose of his letter in verse three. He starts, don't miss it. He starts with the word beloved, which flows right from those first two verses. He, he reminded them that they were loved by God. His blessing was that this love would be multiplied to them. Now he calls them beloved. I want to remind you. I know I just told you. I'm going to tell you again, you're loved by God. And, and by the way, by, by me, by Jude. While we don't know specifically who the readers were, Jude did. And don't miss, he loved them. Remember, this book has been called one of the strongest, one of the, uh, the toughest books of condemnation in the New Testament. But Jude starts by, by telling them that they, they were, they, they were loved. Three times in this short letter, he calls them beloved. In verses here and in verse 17 and verse 20, right when, <laughs> right when you need to hear it most. Yes, in the midst of all of that, he's going to call out the false teachers in their sinful lifestyles. But throughout, he reminds his readers and he reminds you, you are loved. I want you to know that you are loved. I love you. Strong words to say over the next few weeks. I love you. But more than that, you are infinitely loved by God. You are beloved. Jude then tells what he had intended to write. He actually had a different purpose in, in mind. I, I was making every effort. I had every desi strong desire is the idea to write to you about our common salvation. I love that. Uh, about the salvation in Christ that we share in, in common. And wouldn't it be nice if we could do that like all the time? You know, that's, can we camp there? Talk about the mercy and grace that God has extended to us through his son. We remember the words of Paul to the Corinthians, I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I mean, it would be great and I believe it will be great when we get to heaven, but we are not yet there. See, we, we live in the already. We have been saved already. Heaven is assured, but we are not yet there. And so in between the already and the not yet, we must fight. Jude writes, not that so that we would be content, again, take a vacation, but so that we would be vigilant. V vigilant. But here's the challenge. Many, even in the church today, what I am suggesting as a weak church today, want to avoid any conflict at all costs. I mean, come on. Can't we just love one another, agree to get along, put aside our differences? Not yet. We are living in a broken, sin-cursed world where the only answer 
is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And when that gospel truth is threatened, when we catch the jab to the jaw and the enemy takes his stance, we must fight. This is what Jude is calling us to do. We must fight. That's what he goes on to say. I wanted to write to you about our common salvation, but instead I felt the necessity. I felt compelled Indeed, I was forced by extenuating circumstances um, uh, to write to, to you, to appeal to you, to plead with you, to contend earnestly for the faith, which was once for all handed down to the saints. So much, so much to be said there. While he intended to write about our common salvation, that would have been nice. He had apparently received some distressing news and an alarming situation had faced his readers, I wonder if Jude in heaven today, what he would say to the church of Jesus Christ in the U.S. So he wrote this letter that we now have, I would point out is a letter accepted from the earliest days as inspired by the Holy Spirit, a letter with truths as much needed today as ever. I'm suggesting that it should not be neglected and his encouragement to us is as much needed today as ever, ever, and it is to earnestly contend, to fight for the faith. To contend is a word you may be familiar with. It's the word from which we get our word agonize. It's one of my favorite words in the Greek language, agonizomai. It's a word used of military conflict, but also uh, of the contest uh, of fighting or contending or competing in the Greek games. To contend means you work, you fight to the point of exhaustion. You fight, you work to the point of exhaustion. I hear a lot today, even in church circles, I hear a lot about burnout. Study after study has been done. It's talking about the number of pastors who are abandoning their posts, who are quitting the number of pastors who want to quit. Because they're burned out. I don't want to burn out. I'm challenging you. Jude is challenging us not to burn out. I would much rather be like David Brainerd. I've told some of you this before. David Brainerd, who was a missionary to the Native Americans, said he wanted to burn out in one, continually, one continual flame for God. I want to burn out. And he did. He got tuberculosis. And at 27, he died for the cause of Christ, burning out in one continual flame. That's the way I want to go. I want to burn out for Christ. Be why? Because the winner gets the prize. Because in military conflict, it is a matter of life and death. Well, what it means to contend, it means to contend for the faith, it means it will consume all of our energies and more, but in the end, it is worth it because we win. Whatever you have to give, give and more. Don't give up. Don't quit because you're tired. Because you're exhausted. Keep fighting for Christ. Remember the words of the Apostle Paul to Timothy in his last letter. Very last letter he wrote. Well, certain death awaited him. He knew the executioner would come and lead him to the Austrian way and cut off his head. Did that mean he lost? Hardly. 
He says, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the course. I have kept the faith. In the future, there is laid for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing, who have longed for the return of Christ, who who have lived for the return of Christ, who keep their eyes and their focus on the eastern sky. They're not distracted by the things around us. We are looking, we are longing for the return of Christ, and until then, we work. Until the time when no man can work. We long for, we look for Christ. We don't get distracted by the things of this world. Notice Paul said, we, I have fought the good fight. The word fought, actually the word fight as well, comes from the same word that Luke uses, or that Jude uses, to call us to fight, to earnestly contend. This is a contest, this is a fight, and those who fight will win and earn the crown of righteousness. To be clear, Jude is not calling us. We need to be, we need to clarify something here. He's not calling us to take up arms. The the church through history, the medieval church particularly, messed that up. Remember that thing called the Crusades? which started in 1096 when Pope Urban II called for Christian soldiers, primarily from France and Germany, um, to travel to Jerusalem and free uh, uh, that holy city from its occupation by the dreaded Muslim Turks. That is not what Jude was calling for. What he wanted, if you're taking notes, write this down, this is important. What he wanted was that we earnestly contend for the faith and keep the body of Christ, this body of Christ, this local church called Alliance, pure of any error of teaching, pure of any error of lifestyle that would betray the truth of the gospel, that would make a mockery of the Christian faith. Notice he says to contend for the faith. That speaks of a body of truth contained in the gospel that was once for all, a once and final time, never to be repeated, handed down to the saints. The gospel, as articulated, written in the word of God, was handed down one time by the apostles to the saints, that is, believers in Jesus who become holy by nature of their faith in Jesus. You are right now, you don't have to wait to be canonized by the church. You are right now saints if you have received the gospel of Jesus Christ. Once for all, here we are. 2,000 years later, suggesting that we're preaching the same faith. Yes, there have been attacks against the faith, those rising saying that we need something more. We need something different. Joseph Smith, founder of the Mormons, said he was seeking truth. As I recall the story, he was out walking in the woods one day trying to figure out which church to join, this one or this one. Jesus appeared to him, told him that they were both wrong. In fact, everybody had gotten it wrong, but not you, Joseph you would be the bearer of the true truth in the church of the Latter-day Saints. Don't miss that. That's intentional. Latter-day Saints because the early saints got it wrong. The Latter-day Saints, that cult was born, a cult that is contrary to the faith, once handed down. The Reverend Sun Myung Moon said that Jesus failed and that he 
Reverend Moon, would be the second coming of Christ to make all things new. That he, he actually said that Jesus should not have died on the cross, he failed in his mission, and that he would be the Lord of the second advent. It makes me repulsed to say those words. I have said this before. People are always looking for the new and the improved, but what we need is the old and already proven, the faith handed down once for all to the saints. Remember, Paul wrote to the Galatians, if anyone comes to you, even an angel from heaven preaching a gospel other than the one that has been preached, that is, other than the one that came from the apostles, let him be accursed. That is, let him be condemned to eternal hell. There is one gospel and any supposed new truth that contradicts the, the gospel handed down by the apostles is to be earnestly rejected. And anyone who comes to you saying someone, even an angel, told them something new, sorry, Joseph, to be rejected. The gospel we have is glorious and true, and it cannot be improved. In fact, I would say it must not be improved I would also suggest this is a problem in many churches today. We're looking for ways to improve upon it, to entertain, as if the gospel is not enough, to satisfy the needs of consumers, to share some new truth that, is ever, that has never been heard before. If you hear something new, never heard before, it is wrong. Wrong. I don't care what your philosophy of religion professor says. It's wrong. No other gospel no other faith will, will ever be given. This one and this one only is true and right once for all handed down. Paul said it this way in 2 Timothy chapter 2, that last letter that he wrote. He writes to Timothy, the things which you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also, who will teach others, who will teach others, who will teach others, who will teach us and we are responsible to teach others. What we have heard as found in the word of God, we are to receive and to pass on. Ours is not to change it. Ours is certainly not to improve upon it. Ours is to preserve it and faithfully pass it on. And why is this needed? Why did Jude have to change the purpose of his particular letter? Point two, much shorter. Verse four, for certain men, that's likely pejorative. Certain men, you know who they are, have crept in unnoticed. This speaks of their intentional deception. They crept in. They snuck in unnoticed. They were likely traveling teachers, which was quite prominent then, and they had secretly crept into the church. They'd come in through a side door under the cover of darkness. What made them so dangerous is that they were the enemy on the inside. They sounded good. They maybe even sounded like us. They looked good, maybe even looked like us. And they appeared to be one of us. But, but what they shared, what they taught, and further in this book, what they did was wrong and must be dealt with. Must be dealt with. I'm reminded of what Paul wrote to the Corinthian church in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 when there was a, a, a man who had his father's wife, likely his stepmother. And they were proud of it. And he said, I'm not even there, and I'm grieved, and I have already expelled him. What are you doing? Jude says four things about these who had crept in. First, they were long beforehand marked out for this condemnation. What does he mean? He's likely referring to what Enoch had written in First Enoch centuries before. It's not Bible, but what he said was true. We'll talk about that when we get there. He's likely talking about all that the prophets had said in the Old Testament, that to turn from the true and the living God 
there's one, carries dire consequences. He was talking about what the apostles had said uh, about the sure condemnation coming to those who would turn from the gospel. He even quotes Peter, or Peter quotes him, whichever way it is. In the last days, there will be mockers following after their own, don't miss this word, ungodly, ungodly lusts. The point is the condemnation of those teaching falsehoods, denying the truth of the gospel and of Christ, of claiming Christ and living ungodly lives. Their condemnation, and some of you need to hear this, some of you who are claiming Christ but living ungodly lives and not caring, your condemnation is sure. Next he says, they were ungodly persons, favorite, another one of his favorite words that Jude uses in three passages. He uses it a number of times, but three verses that describes these people who had crept in here. And in, in verse 18, which we just quoted, mockers following their own ungodly lusts. In verse 15, look at it with me. Speaking of Enoch's prophecy, actually, uh, and the Lord's future judgment, the Lord came with many thousands of his holy ones, likely talking about angels there, to execute judgment upon all and to convict all the ungodly of their ungodly deeds, which they have done in an ungodly way, and, 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 and of all the harsh things which the ungodly sinners have, smoke, have spoken against them. They were ungodly. Ungodly because their actions were ungodly. To be ungodly is to be against God. It is to be irreverent. They were ungodly people who thirdly turned the grace of God into licentiousness, which is wanton, sinful activity. This word is almost always used, and the rest of Jude will bear this out, is almost always used of sinful sexual activity. It speaks of sexual immorality. Herein lies the major challenge of these who had infiltrated the church. Herein lies the central challenge I am suggesting of the church of Jesus Christ today. They were bringing in their so-called sexual liberty. This has always been a problem of the teaching of free grace. If Grace freely forgives us, then we are free to sin in unbridled sexuality. One, Heinrich Hein actually said it this way, of course God will forgive me. It's his business. It's his job. It became such a big problem that Paul had to deal with it forthrightly in Romans chapter 6. There they, they were actually saying, if sin brings God's grace, then we should sin more so that we get more grace. Sounds ridiculous to even say that, but by our actions, here's my question, have we embraced the, embraced the idea of free grace, allowing for what Dietrich Bonhoeffer called cheap grace? Do we have the audacity to think, well, I should not sin, but hey, God will forgive me, it's his job. Do we presume upon God's grace, knowing we should not, but we do, knowing that he will forgive? Sexual sin is what we are talking about. 
And it had been welcomed in the so-called Church of Jesus Christ. And it has been welcomed into our church as well. How so? Well, the vast majority of single adults in the church today are sexually active. The vast majority of men, majority, and growing number of women in the church are involved in pornography. And the so-called church and many mainline denominations are accepting and even celebrating that which the Bible condemns, homosexual behavior, celebrating it as normal. It has been called the next civil rights movement. Some are even ordaining those involved in such activity. This is not a hobby horse that I ride, but we do come across it rather regularly because sexual immorality is to be found throughout the Scripture. We have welcomed the enemy of our souls into the camp, sexual depravity of every kind. And even as I say that, some of you are offended that I would do so. It sounds unloving. I've been accused of such. Sounds judgmental. I do not want to sound unkind, but Jude will address this very issue. Read the passage in the next few verses. He will address this very issue, and yet we are afraid to. Some of you think, will think me arrogant and bigoted. Some of you will never return. You think me old and out of date. Some of you will even call me. You will email me or text me. You will make appointments to come see me, to tell me how unloving I am, how your friends will now never come back. How do I know that? I have been doing this a very long time. And whenever I address things that the Bible does, where the Bible does, again, not a hobby horse, where the Bible does, and this is the context of the passage, licentiousness, people squirm and they get offended. And I'm suggesting to you that sexual immorality is rampant in the church and we even turn a blind eye. And the words of the Apostle Paul to, to, to the Corinthians is equally apropos to us. What are we doing? There's an old song that asks, are we marching into the enemy's camp, laying our weapons down, shedding our armor as we go, leaving it on the ground? And I'm suggesting that we are. They did in Jude's day, and we are doing the same thing today. And so he writes to us to say, earnestly contend for the faith, a faith that changes lives. Please notice the way Jude writes, who turned the grace of our God into licentiousness, our God. This is meant to be quite personal. This is our God, the greatest treasure of our lives that they are abusing, that they are ignoring, that they are flouting. There should be a response on the part of the church. It should grieve us. If someone were to speak abusively of 
your spouse or your children or your parents or your siblings, some of you would rightly come to their defense. How much more should we come to the defense of our God and His grace when the gospel is being perverted? Especially when we remember what the gospel cost. The death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. How dare we presume upon God's grace? Finally, the last description, give me two more minutes, is is they deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Your translations may have it, our only Sovereign and Lord. The word Master is the word despotes, from which we get our word despot. We usually use it in a negative sense. It's not always negative. If the master, the sovereign, um, who is sovereignly in control is good, altogether good, then his sovereignty is altogether good. He is also Lord, a word most often used of God, speaking of his deity, his right to rule our lives. Don't miss how sovereign and Lord refer to Jesus Christ. That is his deity and his absolute right to rule our lives and to say, I don't care what he wants is to deny the master that bought us. Most agree these who had crept into the church were not spouting heretical teaching per se. That is, they were not denying the deity of Jesus or his humanity or his perfect life or his atonement or his resurrection. They were denying his lordship, his lordship of their lives by not living in ways that he commanded. They were not living new lives uh, in Christ. They were living lives of sin. They were denying, you see, his right to rule. We remember Titus chapter 1. They professed to know God as some of you do. But by their deeds, they deny him because they're detestable and disobedient. The point is, what we are dealing with in this book and those who had crept into the church, those who have crept into the church today are seeking to despoil the church, not necessarily by their heretical teaching, but by their sinful lives. Much of the time that goes together, not necessarily always. But we see today what Jude addresses, people who want to claim, listen carefully, people who want to claim Jesus as Savior but have no intention of submitting to him as Lord. I'm going to say to you that that is not the Christian faith. Some of you are living in sin. You did last night. And you show up on Sundays like everything is okay, and it is not. Your soul is in eternal jeopardy. You cannot, you must not presume on God's grace. Others of you are aware of people professing Christ. They claim to know God, yet you know that they are living lives of egregious sin. What then do we do? Well, because we love them, we confront them. We call them to repent. We call them to righteousness. It is, listen carefully. It is not loving to allow sinners to live in this context. It is not loving to allow sinners, your, your, your brothers, your sisters, your, your, your kids, 
your roommates, it is not loving to allow them to live in sexual sin as if they profess to know Christ. It is loving to call them to righteousness, to submit to the sovereign lordship of Jesus Christ, lest their souls be in eternal peril. Let's stand for prayer. Father, it is true. I've been around the block a time or two, and I know that sounds harsh. Sounds unkind and unloving. Yet I I, I believe that the Scripture is true. And the unloving thing to do is to allow sinners to continue in their sin. To allow those who name the name of Christ to spit in the face of Christ. To live for themselves and as if they, they themselves are Lord six days of the week and carve out an hour or two on Sunday morning where they sing pretty songs that speak of the lordship of Jesus. These are hard words. Father, I'm, I'm asking that you would help us to be a faithful church, which includes um, saying no to sin ourselves personally. We, we've been empowered by the Holy Spirit to do so. If we, if we truly know Jesus, our lives are being transformed. Help us to say no to sin. We will either be killing sin or sin will be killing us. And then help us to walk together as brothers and sisters in Christ. And when we see sin to lovingly and gently, yes, lovingly and gently call it out. Because we love. Because we want to be faithful. Because this is a matter of life and death. We are fighting We're not giving up. We're faithfully following. Help us, I pray, to not only submit to Jesus as Savior, help us to submit to him as Lord, sovereign master and Lord of our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.